0: Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at sovereignhope.church. That's sovereignhope.church. Lord Jesus, it's a privilege to come before you. And even as our text uh, discusses today, the only way in which we approach you is to approach Before you. That's to come to the one who exists uh, apart from us, who exists before us in worth and honor and eternality. And simply by seeing who you are, it then shapes who we are. Made in your image, perfect in creation, stained by sin, but redeemed through Jesus. And Lord, those effects, and more importantly, the effects we have through faith in Jesus. Change us in ways that we cannot understand, uh, but labor to live in light of this side of death. So Lord, make us a humble church. Make us a church eager to share your good news with others. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So we've been working through the book of Luke here at Sovereign Hope. This marks our 52nd week in the book of Luke. And Jesus has, since chapter 11, been leaning into conflict with the Pharisees and the Jewish officials of his day. In our passage today, Jesus is inside the belly of the beast itself. He is taking steps towards Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. And almost with each step, this conflict becomes more and more highlighted. And today, Jesus goes to dinner with the ruler of a Pharisee. And we're gonna spend two weeks at this dinner table discussion with Jesus and the Pharisees. And while we will learn much about ourselves in this dinnertime discussion, we will also learn much about the heart of our Savior himself. Let's not forget that Jesus is willingly going in to recline at table to have a potluck with a group of individuals who in the not-too-distant future are part of a group of people who will falsify court proceedings, condemn an innocent man, and murder him for crimes that he didn't commit. It's important to remember that Jesus as we'll see today, uses the Old Testament to even help himself. And we could think of King David in Psalm 23, when he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Jesus is at table in the presence of his enemies, but trusting in his heavenly father. And in the midst of a hostile and misunderstanding world, Jesus is constantly moving into difficult places because the gospel moves into difficult places. I don't know where your background is or your family background, but the gospel moves into difficult places of families that have no history of faith in Jesus. The gospel moves into difficult places going into countries where it has never been preached. The gospel moves into difficult places moving into tribes where to convert to Christianity is often to be uh, hunted down and killed on account of your faith. The gospel always moves into difficult places. And you want to know the most difficult place the gospel will ever go? into your own heart. The gospel confronts the realities of our flesh every step of the way. And as we've been following the the life and ministry of Jesus in the book of Luke, wherever Jesus goes, there is a collision between the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this gospel that he is proclaiming, and the kingdom of your own flesh, the kingdom of your desires, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of what you think you deserve. And because of that, how you view Jesus either positively or negatively, will inevitably affect how you view and how you value yourself, others, and everything else in this world. And this is the main point we're going to see today is we're going to see that faith in Jesus confronts our hypocrisy and gives us humble hope. Faith in Jesus confronts our hypocrisy and gives us humble hope. And we're going to see this in kind of the two chunks that you have in your scripture. In verses uh, seven through, or one through six, we're going to see hypocrisy humiliated, where Jesus heals another person on the Sabbath. And then in verses seven through 11, Jesus begins a series of parables, and we'll talk about humility being exalted in the parable of the wedding feast. So hypocrisy humiliated and humility exalted. And first, in verses 1 through 6, as Bridger just read for us, we read of uh, the introduction to this meal, where we begin to see hypocrisy humiliated. Jesus comes on the Sabbath to dine in the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, and this would have been the equivalent of someone who's a sitting senator inviting somebody who's actively campaigning against him to come and have dinner in his home. Because Jesus was teaching from the same Old Testament scriptures, all these Pharisees and lawyers that were assembled there were teaching from. But what we've seen constantly is that Jesus's application and understanding of those Old Testament scriptures was completely contrary to how the religious officials understood them in their day. What Jesus was preaching was a recovery of God's promise instead of the law of man's efforts. It was calling them to have faith in the righteousness of God through faith, receiving it that way through God's promise instead of what you can do. And so there's this tension all the way through it, a tension that still exists today. And so in light of all of this, it leaves us the question of why in the world would the Pharisees invite this man to dinner with them? And actually, if you have your Bible open, and I'd encourage you to, Luke 14, you'll notice this chunk at least includes verses 1 through 24 and in Jesus' three parables, you could do this as Bible study later, you could go through, and Jesus uses the, the word, the verb, invite, eight times. It's almost like if you were in a creative writing class, your teacher would say, is there another verb you could use? But Jesus is using the same verb over and over and over again. And I think it's striking, because if you look at verse one here, it doesn't say that Jesus was invited to dine. It just says, he went to dine. And this is probably because, even though Jesus was invited he wasn't invited out of hospitality. It was a culture of the day at that time where if you were a a Jewish religious official and a visiting rabbi came to your town, that you were to host them. And so even though Jesus is constantly frustrating the religious officials, there is this social obligation, this pressure for them to invite Jesus in and to have him at a meal. And we can kind of discern this even a little bit more when we see what these Pharisees are doing when Jesus is there. Did you notice in verses 1 and 2, it says, They were watching him carefully, and behold, there was before him a man who had dropsy. Now remember at the beginning of the year, we uh, we did a sermon series on how to read the Bible through its literary genres. And so what we're reading here is a narrative. And so if you, narrative is just a story. If you were reading a detective novel or a Tom Clancy novel, and you read this account, we would hear what just happened, and we'd say, this sounds like a setup. He goes in there, everyone's watching him closely and carefully, and behold, there's a man who has dropsy in their midst. My wife, I won't take any participation in this. My wife did an experiment with our daughter once where she hid her camera phone Uh, On the table to where our daughter couldn't see it. And she set our daughter there, and everyone left the room. And she said, Ellie, I want you to sit here and I don't want you to do anything. And behold, my wife put a cupcake on the table right in front of her. And we left and we recorded. Why? Because we wanted to see what the behold did in Ellie's heart as to how she would grapple with the clear commands to not do it. But what would she do when? it was presented, this delicious, gluten-filled, sugary morsel. And what we did, in a sense of twisted fun, the Pharisees did, what Sarah did, in a sense of twisted fun, (laughs) the Pharisees did with a keen sense of hate and disdain for Jesus. They had heard, because we had just spent two weeks ago, Jesus healed a woman bent over for 18 years on the Sabbath. They'd heard rumors that Jesus would do this, and now... They wanted to catch him in the act. And so they found a man who was suffering mightily. He had what's called dropsy. Another translation might say uh, edema. For those of you who are not medically minded, another translation tells us that he was suffering from an abnormal swelling of the body. If you don't think that's serious, talk to Johnny and his family. It is a serious thing. It's painful. It's hard. This man was suffering mightily. And what we see here is something that, that I've often said And I'll say it again, that's if we misunderstand the gospel of Jesus, that is the good news of grace, we always inevitably view other people either as tools or as threats. These men had an agenda, and they probably knew from walking around their town that there was this swollen, suffering man, and they should bring him. They should bring him as a tool. They should use him as a trap where they can be vindicated by having Jesus healed. They have no concern for this man at all. It's just placed there and behold, what is Jesus going to do with this pawn? But Jesus did not see this man as a mere tool. He saw this man as being burdened and in need of a savior. And what the Pharisees were fine ignoring or using to leverage their own righteousness, Jesus moved towards in mercy. And they probably expected you to just walk in to see this man, to heal him. And then everyone's going to jump out and say, gotcha. But Jesus turns the hypocrisy on its head when he just asks them one simple question. Do you see that question in verse three? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And what happened? Luke tells us they remained silent. Jesus' words always confront our best laid plans because Jesus had just trapped them. Behold, Jesus was smarter. (laughs) Jesus came in, and the truth was, the Old Testament itself did not have laws prohibiting somebody from healing on the Sabbath. There's not many laws on the book today that prohibit you from striking a Superman pose and soaring off to the sky or shooting lasers out of your eyes. Why? Because it's assumed that we as humans probably won't wrestle with that dilemma of power. In the same way, the Old Testament assumed that the average human walking around isn't going to have to curb his healing abilities. But this is the importance of who Jesus is. Jesus is not only fully man, he is also fully God. And that reality of the divine God-man, Jesus Christ, always exposes our hypocrisy. He is different than any of us. He is able to uphold the law with perfect obedience. But he's also able to do with the law what only God can do. And so this pressed a a problem, The simple question on the Pharisees. Because if they answer, yes, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, well, then they've just done two things that ruined their entire plot. They acknowledge and confer on Jesus the authority to heal. But then in giving him the authority to heal, they recognize that he also has the power to heal. And so they can't say yes because now their trap is like egg on their own face. But they also can't say no, because here they just brought this suffering man into this room, and this man and these Pharisees know that Jesus heals. And so if they come in and they say, no, the law prohibits it, when the law doesn't explicitly prohibit it, they're saying to this suffering, swollen man, here is the one who has the authority and the power to heal you, but we are not going to let him heal you. And for a group of people like the Pharisees and these lawyers, they are so concerned about how other people view them. That is not a good political look. And so they resolve to silence. And as the smoke is coming out of their ears and the Pharisees are maybe thinking how they're going to weasel themselves out of this theological conundrum, did you notice what Jesus did in verse 4? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. While the self-righteous and hypocritical world debates the validity and the legitimacy of Jesus, Jesus takes hold of those who need healing. In the Gospel of John, chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind and it stupefies the Pharisees. They don't know what to do with this. And so they take this man and they grab his parents and they start this inquisition. And they're like, okay, tell us about your son. Was he really born blind? Were you part of this ploy? Can he really, like, how bad can he not see? And so they're grilling these individuals and then they find the blind man and they're like, well, it couldn't have been Jesus who healed you because Jesus is a sinner and sinners can't heal anybody. And so this healed, exacerbated man finally cries out to the Pharisees. And it's funny because what he says next, is like, why, do you want to know so he could heal you too? Which would have been insulting to the Pharisees because they thought they didn't need any healing. But he says this, he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know is that I was blind and now I see. So you might be one who has experienced from the world or perhaps from some self-righteous Christians a furrowed brow, a sense of confusion, and maybe even fear towards your suffering, towards your sin. And they ask questions like, well, can we fix you? Are you able, can you be fixed? Can you be fixed now? Do we even have the ability? Do we have the power? Is the gospel big enough? But I'm here to tell you that there is a savior who is not threatened by your circumstances or by your past. He has come to take hold of you. And he does that by giving you eyes to see what these Pharisees cannot see. He gives you eyes to see who he is by faith, that he is the Messiah who fulfills the law, who is God himself, who has the authority and the power to heal on the Sabbath because he is the God who brings rest. And Jesus now turns to everyone and he presses this hypothetical question that further exposes uh, hypocrisy in verses five and six. Look at what he says here. And he said to them, so after he he takes hold of the man and heals him and sends him away, he says, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So again, part of why the Pharisees thought they had a foolproof plan is because the Pharisees and the Jewish tradition of that day took the simple Sabbath laws in the Old Testament and they added hundreds more on top of it to where it became increasingly burdensome. But Jesus challenges them with an obvious hypothetical. It's the obvious nature of it that makes it so powerful. He says, if you have a son or even an ox, so he's working on these extremes here, and it falls into a well, how many of you would not immediately, do you notice that word? Immediately pull him out. Jesus says uh, later in Mark 2, verse 27, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God's design for the Sabbath was not to restrict salvation to man's detriment. The Sabbath was always for man's good. The Sabbath was to give them the rest of salvation for their delight. And so Jesus's hypothetical situation here highlights two important factors that Jesus is playing with. The first is the immediacy of the need. Someone or something has fallen into a well. And then second, it highlights the ability to save the power to do something to fix the need. He says, if you see an immediate need and if you have the power to do something, wouldn't you do it? Or wouldn't you at least know that that's what you ought to do? If you walked outside these doors and saw someone being mugged in the parking lot, I would hope that the immediacy of the need, the power you have to even yell for help or to return to find somebody who can help would be pressing. It would be a self-evident thing to do. Jesus says, how much more should I immediately relieve the suffering of this man by divine mercy? And so Jesus leans into our common sense to explode, or to expose our, our inner conflict. The immediacy and the power of the gospel exposes our hypocrisy on a daily level. Just as the Pharisees diminished the work of Jesus, so too do our lives if we apply this same sort of standard to it. What if I put it this way? Which of you, if learning a trade or saving for a house, would not install a plan that enables slow, consistent growth toward maturity? Seems the average thing to do. Which of you, then, knowing these same things makes a plan to grow in your understanding and your application of the eternal gospel, of reading, enjoying, and applying God's word in Scripture? You have a plan for so many things. Do you have a plan for growth in the eternal thing? Or which of you in purchasing that new car or that new shoe find the first opportunity to share with your neighbor what that has done for you, the ease it's afforded to you, the comfort it's brought to you? Which of you then, knowing the astounding need, the immediate salvation, and the wonderful provision of Jesus Christ has gone and shared that with your neighbor? Or which of you, if you saw your child ignoring their teacher, texting in class, would not come and quickly seek to discipline them and to call them to respect? Well, which of you call your children to heed, to honor, and to desire the reading and and preaching of God's word to the best degree that their stage and age allows them to? Which of you dads, in seeing your son throw a football, will critique their form, wanting to help them in the long run? Which of you see your kids, your fellow members in this church, establishing patterns of sin and saying, well, that won't affect them in the long run. We'll just let them be. You see, when we ask those questions, we find ourselves just like the Pharisees, don't we? We remain silent. We have no answer because we know as soon as we answer, it reveals what? Our hypocrisy. It reveals our inconsistency of values. We claim to believe in the superiority of the gospel above all things, amen. But we wrestle to live it out. You see, when we really believe the eternal realities of the gospel, the gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. When we believe that apart from him, we are dead in our sins and destined for eternal damnation in hell, apart from the gracious work of Jesus Christ, who calls us to himself, gives us his Holy Spirit, and makes us day by day more and more like him so that we might spend an eternity with God the Father. If that is true, then we begin to look at the whole of our life and it is a giant hypocritical mess. It exposes our self-conflicted hearts and our debating values in a way that makes us squeamish. But praise God that Jesus was not a hypocrite. Praise God that Jesus came in to this hypocrisy uh, and hospitality and he took control of it. You see, this is really interesting. Jesus came as a host and can you, or Jesus came as a guest. And can you imagine if you invited somebody like Jesus into your home and you found them doing the very things Jesus is doing here? He went from guest to host real quick. Jesus came into this and he took the reins of the dinner party and now he's just starting to preach and he's preaching to the guests. And the next week he's going to turn, he's going to preach to the host and he's going to turn, he's going to preach to the whole party. One commentator said at this point that Jesus has made it clear he will not be a passive guest. That's true for all of us, isn't it? To start dabbling with the doctrine of the gospel, to start hanging out with Jesus, will quickly show that he has come to be the host, not the helper. That he's the boss, not the bellboy. That he's come to shake us out of our hypocrisy by showing us everything in light of him and challenging how we view and value everything. And this reality will challenge your flesh. It should. If Jesus is pre-existent before us, part of a triune Godhead, then he is different than us and it should challenge us. But by realizing that and by submitting yourself to it, it also is the only way where it can satisfy your soul. And this is where Jesus goes next as he shares a parable with his guests. Is it actually not his guests, is it? (laughs) He shares a parable with his hosts. And it's here we see our second point. We see humility exalted, humility exalted. And so let's read this parable of the wedding feast in verses seven through 11. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit, in the place of, sit down in the, a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the host comes, he might say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So first, just a little bit of cultural context here that helps us understand that. Dinner tables in the ancient Near East were a lot like high school lunchrooms. There was a seating hierarchy. The cool kid, the host, sat at the head of the table. And the next was the most distinguished guest next to him, the next cool person. And then that ladder, that social ladder, continued all the way down to the lowest seat where the person who was most relationally or socially removed from the host would sit. And I love the irony here because remember what the Pharisees were doing when Jesus came here? They were watching him carefully. But what is Jesus doing here? He's watching them carefully. He's come into this room and he sees their hearts and he's noticed that all of them kind of, have you played musical chairs? Everyone's played musical chairs, right? To to play musical chairs is to be human. And there's that time where you're, you're kind of like, and especially, if you're playing it with kids, you don't want to look like you're super into it, but you're super into it. And so you do this kind of like weird shuffle as you think the music's gonna stop and you're kind of like jockeying for that position. You're like, I have an itch, uh, but you're still moving. And so Jesus is knowing this kind of like anxious, like, I'm gonna take that seat. I sure hope you don't. Like the, the pivot, like we're talking to somebody and you just kind of rotate around them. And you're like, oh, that's behind me. Oh, we're seated? Okay. So he notices this jockeying amongst their hearts. And the reality behind that is something that Jesus sees very clearly is that not only do they want that seat, but they want that seat because they think they deserve it. Have you ever made the unfortunate error of sitting in the wrong seat on an airplane or at a concert and the person who has that ticket shows up? Is there anything more humiliating than announcing to everyone in the general vicinity that matching is hard? That you forgot how to read a ticket? And you're like, oh my goodness, it's the same thing it's been for the last month since I've had this and you have to stand up and you move. But you can imagine how much more worthy of shame it is if you knew the ticket were wrong. And you went and you looked at all the seats and you said, no, I deserve this seat more than anybody else. No one else is coming. I am the greatest and I'm gonna sit here. And then as the show begins, someone who has the right ticket, someone who is more distinguished comes and you have to stand up in front of everybody and look and see all the other seats are taken. You've got to waltz up to the nosebleeds in front of everyone who thought you belonged. And it's this kind of inversion and humiliation that Jesus is warning against here. Jesus knows we're driven by shame. We should come to Jesus because we need salvation. But for many of us, the felt need in our life is we should come to Jesus because we live in shame. And the end of everybody apart from the good news of Jesus is not just damnation, but it is shame. It is knowing that you were wrong. But Jesus wants us to see here two things and we see this in this parable, we can apply it at the immediate level and at our level. And first, when we look at the immediate context of that dinner party, we see that what Jesus, who Jesus turns to at this point are, we see in verse seven, those who were invited. And so if we look back at the text, who's, who's here now? Well, Jesus and perhaps his disciples, assuming his disciples are with him, are there. The plant, the man with dropsy has been sent away. So who remains? Well, we see it's the Pharisees and the lawyers. There's the experts in the law, and the teachers in the law. It's people who had high social standing, people who were seen as elites, as leaders. And what did these leaders just seek to do with Jesus, these teachers of the law? They sought to trap him with the law as they understood it. But what did Jesus do with them? He trapped them in the same law that they were trying to trap him with. This parable isn't a disconnected teaching. It's actually a parable explaining exactly what just happened. In Matthew 23, verse 2, Jesus says of the Pharisees, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Jesus was invited into a meal where these men sat on the seat of the law, believing themselves to be worthy experts. They were the superior ones who were going to expose this traveling charlatan But by the end, it was shown that a more distinguished guest had arrived in their midst. At the end, these Pharisees were not shown as guests of honor. They were humiliated and shown as foolish. They were silent, unable to open their mouths in front of the man who came to rightly teach and perfectly fulfill the law. They wanted to lord the Sabbath over Jesus, but Jesus proved himself to be lord of the Sabbath see, the Pharisees made, it, made a mistake that many modern challengers to Christianity make as well. They try to set themselves as experts over God's word instead of putting themselves under God's word. And in so doing, they dig their own trap. They tried to pit the word of God in the Old Testament against the word of God in the flesh. You'll find, and maybe you have if you've ever uh, watched a YouTube philosopher or taken an intro to philosophy class. Maybe you've tried to share the gospel with your neighbor and people love to use scripture to disprove scripture, which seems like a self-defeating argument because it is. It's a fool's errand. But why do we do it? We do it because we think God is just like us. We know how we can get tripped up in our words. We know we have internal inconsistencies. We are by nature conflicted and limited. We are conflicted in that we deceitfully sometimes say things we know not to be true for the sake of our own appearance. But then we're limited in that we genuinely say something, but when that moment comes, we might not have the ability or the power to preserve what was said. But Numbers 23, 19, we read this in our Bible reading plan this week. says, God is not a man that he should lie. God's word is not at odds with God's word. Trying to use God's word against himself is like trying to use a flashlight to create darkness. It just doesn't work. The law, though unable to save, was never meant to conceal God's salvation. The law was meant to highlight it, to amplify it, to shine a spotlight on it. These Pharisees were trying to use the Old Testament law to throw a blanket over the very light the Old Testament law was trying to fan into flame. You see, the point of the law was to lead us to Christ, not away from it. Paul himself, in Galatians 3:24, says this. He says, "So then, the law was our guardian." Another translation is a tutor, almost even like the sense of a babysitter. There's a time frame appointed to that; that it was made to pass. The law was a guardian; it was temporary for what? Until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. In other words, if the experts of the law were really experts in the law, then they should have seen that the law clearly pointed to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Sabbath and that he was the distinguished guest that they were waiting for and they would have humbled themselves to him instead of trying to trap him. See, Christian, even though Jesus fulfilled the law, we have much to learn from it in regard to the ethics in through which we live out our faith it's meant to shape our lives even today as Christians, new covenant Christians, seeing what Jesus has done. But more than that, the law leads us to our need for Jesus. That's how the apostle Paul reflect on the law. And we need this because we can become so consumed with the outer workings of holiness and righteousness and Christian behavior that just like, we'll talk more about this next week, just like the Israelites did in the promised land, they got there by grace but then they began to think that they were able to live there by their own guts, by their own might, by their own effort. Paul points out the foolishness of this also in Galatians, same chapter where he says this. He says in verse three, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? How easy and how quickly it is for us to forget that all of our growth is growth from what Jesus has given to us, not from our own merit. In other words, the law and your growth and holiness are never pointing to your own sufficiency, but instead it points you to your dependence upon the more distinguished guest. The law humbles us so that we might see what the Pharisees didn't, that someone of greater honor needs that seat. The law exposes our need for Jesus, but here Luke is exposing the beauty of Jesus. Despite Jesus's subtle rebuke of the Pharisees and their blatant hypocrisy, there's a sense of astounding optimism Jesus leaves on the table here. Never miss this. Always pay attention when Jesus talks in general, um, but pay attention to how he talks here to the Pharisees, who he's generally very hard with and deservedly so. But notice this optimism in verse chapter 14, verse 10. He says, when you are invited, speaking to his guests, the same people who just gave us adventures in missing, in missing the point. When you are invited, go to the lowest place so that when your host comes, he might say to you, friend, move up higher. We are all hypocrites. And when Jesus starts asking questions of your life, we will all see that we all quickly fail. None of us have deserved anything that Jesus did for us. But what do we see here? That even the lowly are offered a seat at the table of Jesus. Jesus says, even of the Pharisees, if you come, and there's great hope in that phrase, If you come, if you come, no matter how foolish you are, if you come, no matter how deep your sin, if you come, no matter how hardened your hypocrisy, take the lowest seat. And the master will come and say, friend, move up higher. Jesus says that to the Pharisees. If there's hope for them in this text, there's hope for us. And what is the hope for the hypocritical, the conflicted, and the sinner? If you come, take the lowest seat. If you humbly come to Jesus, he will restore you. There's an entrance fee to Christianity. And it's not merely faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is essential. But faith in Jesus is also a faith statement about yourself. Faith in Jesus only makes sense if you have a right faith about yourself. Not what the world says, not that you're beautiful, lovely, and able to do wonderful things, but that you are the man with dropsy, that you are the son in a well, that you are a sinner in need of grace, and that Jesus comes and he acknowledges the immediacy of your need, and he alone is the one who has the power to save you. To have faith in Jesus as a savior is not merely to acknowledge that Jesus exists, but to acknowledge that we need the savior who exists, that we are broken and he is able. The entrance fee to Christianity is humility. Without humility, there is no faith. It cannot live. And it must be put to death daily. Brothers and sisters, I was raised in a Christian home. I attended a Christian school. I went to seminary. I've been on staff here for 16 years, preaching weekly in different roles here at the church. And I have to remind myself daily that I need the lowest seat. I was discipling a guy last week and we were just talking about how easy and how sinister it is in our hearts that we begin to believe in grace and confess grace, but then we begin to go and start counting, counting what we've done, seeing how long we've been there. And we begin to take it for granted. And we begin to say, no, this is on account of me. But we come to the feast with nothing. Nothing but the golden ticket of faith in Jesus. Nothing but hope in the one more distinguished than ourselves. J.C. Ryle says it this way. The root of humility is right knowledge. The man who knows himself and his own heart, who knows God and his infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ and the price at which he was redeemed, that man will never be a proud man. We are reading in the Old Testament right now as a church, portions of the law. Look at the law. Stare at it and see how you don't match up. To break one, Paul says, is to break them all. But if you look at that and you still say, well, I'm pretty good. We look at those around you and say, well, I'm way better than Carl. Carl's broken more of these. Then look at Jesus. Stare into his face. See him for who he is. He is sinless, always faithful, never dying, perfect in obedience, tempted, tried, unstained, and unfailing. The head seat at the right hand of the host is not ours to gain, but by grace, it's Jesus's to give. R.C. Sproul says, the exaltation and honor we experience is to be given to us, not grasped by us. We all have an innate sense of shame. We have an innate sense of wrong. And the only way to get rid of that is not to outdo what Jesus has done, but to take by grace what only he can do. If you're not a Christian, you're here today. I'm so glad you're here. And I hope that you continue to wrestle intellectually with what the Bible is saying because the Bible is intellectually true, It is internally consistent. But at the bottom of all of your intellect, you will find that you still need faith, humble faith. At the end of all knowledge is the reality that you either will walk away from this and you will say, I need to make sense of this. Or you will begin to say, God has made sense of this. There is faith at the end. You will either say, you cannot reason your way to God. You cannot get there and be like, aha, I knew this was true. I put two and two together and we got salvation by grace through faith. At the end, you will either trust your word or the world's word, or you will come to trust God's word. Truth for any of us, when we soberly look at our own hearts, is something that exists apart from us. But here is the one who is worthy of a trust apart from us. Here is the one who has the power to save and to save immediately. To the Christian, do you have a power or a pattern of helpful self-assessment and gospel application? A pattern of helpful self-assessment and helpful gospel application. Often counsel people who wrestle with varying degrees of depression and I always find there's both a beauty and a burden to someone who wrestles acutely with depression. The beauty is that those who wrestle in this way always take the lowest seat. They go into that room and they know exactly what chair is theirs and they make their way there. They see themselves as undeserving and unworthy of Jesus's grace. But the burden is is that they know themselves. They know themselves perhaps even better than you know yourself. And much like this man with dropsy who is just a pawn in a greater scheme, they often find themselves just like he was, out of place, unwanted, and ignored. I was talking to one sister who said that I really wrestle coming to church on communion Sundays because I never feel worthy to take it. I wish that all of us might share that profoundly true glimpse of theology. We do not deserve to take Christ, but Christ has taken hold of us. Christ took the man with dropsy. Christ takes you today not by healing you from your physical ailments, but by taking you and giving you the eyes of faith, faith in the gospel, faith that views and values things in light of Jesus. The English pastor Robert Murray chain once said, for every look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Here's the practice of preaching the gospel to yourself. Here's the practice of preaching the gospel to others. Yes, we come to Jesus with nothing. We come unworthy. We come undistinguished. We come undeserving. We come knowing that there is always a seat reserved for someone who is not us. The honor seat does not belong to us. But we also know that the host takes our hand. He says to you, friend, move up higher. He says to you in your low estate, friend, there's honor here for you because there's a generous brother on the honor seat. He shares with you his righteousness. He shares with you his standing. He does not lord over you his knowledge or his perfection, but he shares it with you, connecting all who are at the table from the lowest to the highest to the side of the one host. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't make all of us sit in the honor seat. He sits in the honor seat, but in him, all of us have access to God the Father. We share access, not because of the best we have, but because of the best Jesus has. That is far greater than your best, friends. That is far greater than my best. That is far greater than your greatest preacher's best. That is the best of Jesus held out for you. You see, the gospel is a devastating blow to the conflict of our whole heart because it goes against everything we naturally think best. And the secular world, if you listen to music, if you read articles, the secular world tells us that this kind of danger of humble, or actually the word the Bible uses, this humiliated thought is toxic and dangerous. And it would be drastically foolish. It would be intellectually disingenuous, and experientially egregious for us to constantly want to humble ourselves if the gospel were not true. If the gospel were not true, there's no one to lend you a hand. It is you and you alone. There's no one to save you from the well. You better scratch and crawl and work. There's no one who's gonna say you're better than another unless you could prove it. But in the gospel, there is another. There is another who has come to help. If the gospel is true, it makes all the sense in the world because though we come humbly, we do not come without honor because the gospel assumes that we were made in the image of God. As humans, we have innate worth because God made us. But we also have an innate problem, and that is that sin has ruined us. But the gospel that we see here shows that Jesus has moved relationally towards us as friends in faith. Jesus does not plug his nose when he reaches out to touch you. God the Father does not squeamishly take in the weird friend of his son. The whole delight of the Trinity reaches out to you in faith. And he says, friend, move up higher. For Christ has brought you through him to the side of the host. The same hand of God, which will humiliate those who exalt themselves in this life, is the same hand of God that exalts those who humble themselves in this life. Peter, who is probably right here in this room, echoes this parable in 1 Peter 5, 6, where he says this. He speaks immediate context to to pastors and leaders in the church. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Brothers and sisters, we who take the last seat will be exalted in the last day. Make no mistake. Our life is a life of humiliation, of realizing our sin. Our life is a life of feeling foolish in light of the values of the world. But one day, we will be exalted like we cannot imagine. And right now, we have that assurance of faith because even though Christ submitted himself to death, even death on the cross, God has exalted him highly to the right hand of God the Father. And so right now, you're joined to that host through that man in the honor seat. And so we view ourselves and our world rightly for all who come to him will be exalted by his merit, by his mercy and his honor. So let us take joyfully the last seat, which is ours, so that Jesus can put us on the one that was always his. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is no clear application for humility besides humiliation. So Lord, humiliate us. Humiliate us in a way that doesn't crush our dignity, but actually points to the, the, that the only dignity we have is dignity because we are made in the image of a beautiful God. That our dignity comes because God was passionate enough to pursue the lost that Jesus saw us with dropsy and swelling of heart and took hold of us, heals us, and sends us out. Lord, we ask that you work this miracle in our hearts so that we might not miss what the Pharisees missed, that we might see you for who you are, and it changes how we view ourselves and how we value everything. We thank you that there's hope for the hypocritical because all we do is we humbly return And we ask for more grace. We pray this in your name. Amen.